Our study of the Divine Big Ten brings us, as we begin this week together, to commandment number nine. Our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wurtson, helps us focus on the horrible consequences resulting from false testimony in a court as he tells an updated version of a gripping Old Testament story. The scene opens with an inmate named Dwight on death row, reminiscing about all the things he used to get to do with his wife and kids. It is just a few minutes before he makes the long walk. He saw himself going to some of his kids' ball games, everything from major league football to basketball games. And uh, then he would find himself asking some questions. How in the world was his, his wife? How was she going to be able to live? How was she going to be able to live without him being present? How would she be able to take care of their 11-year-old, their 9-year-old, and their 7-year-old? And that's when the tears would begin to roll down his cheek and he'd look at the pictures of his family and he could barely look upon those pictures. Because in just a few minutes, just to walk down a corridor into a kind of like a padded room and they'd let the cyanide tablets be exploded and he would be gone into eternity. He heard the guard walking down. He had already eaten his last meal and he made that long walk and in a few seconds of time, he was gone. And his widow cried, and his kids had to live for the rest of their lives, trying to explain to their classmates why their father was executed for murder. About six months after Dwight's execution, the bulldozers moved into his farm, and they started to clear away the beautiful cloud fields. They began to cut out roads. The appraisers began to come in and the different surveyors and they divided his farm up into all these different tracks. And one of the high-powered developers uh, was able to make a big buck. Martin Chelansky was able to bring in all of his crew and, and he could just picture in his mind the millions of dollars that he would make. And as Martin drove around in his brand new Lincoln Continental, he began to think about his bank account that had swelled into the several millions by this time. And he found himself thinking that was relatively easy. You know, just setting him up, having that 15-year-old girl murdered and then thrown out on Dwight's farm, just a few fingerprints put in the right places here and there. And then it was relatively easy to find three guys, pay him about $25,000 a piece, which was small stuff compared to the, the cash that he'd been put up into his, into his wallet because of the development. It was relatively easy to get three guys to kind of witness that they'd seen Dwight's car rushing away from the body of that 15-year-old girl that night. And Martin Shalansky made millions, and Dwight lost his life, and an entire family lost his daddy. And that's called injustice. A story that, like that makes us cry for justice. It makes us long for the fact that, that as Dwight is being taken to the gas chamber, that suddenly the governor, suddenly a lawyer, suddenly somebody will come in and say, stop. I mean, after all, in a good TV drama, isn't that what happens? Isn't the innocent man just in the nick of time in a Perry Mason thriller? Don't they get to walk free? Well, in fiction, that's the way it's supposed to work. But in real life, 
in an unjust court system, the innocent man can face death while the wicked person goes free. And every one of us should feel and we should cry out, that is wrong. Deep in our soul, we should cry out for Dwight's family. Deep in our soul, we should cry for those kids. And we should realize how important it is that there's a loving judge of all the earth. Will not the ultimate judge of all the earth do right? And ultimately, he's going to do right. But he has given to us in his love a precious command because from the bottom of his guts, the Lord God of heaven doesn't want an innocent Dwight to be killed. He doesn't want false witnesses to go into a court and fabricate stories. He doesn't want lawyers just to play semantic games. And that's why he's given us the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. Let's turn in our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 20. And here we have the cry in ancient Israel. And it needs to be the cry in our own lives today the cry of the moral Lord God of heaven, that there might be justice in the courtroom. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 20. When we get to the ninth commandment, we read, You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. The word testimony in this particular verse is a legal word. It means uh, in, its, in its normal setting in life, it refers to going over here to the Ellis County Courthouse or the Dallas Courthouse or the courthouse where you live. And it means that when a, a witness is called up on the witness stand, and it's always a very dramatic moment, at a retreat that I was at yesterday, one of the fellows that was with me shared how he spent all last week in court and how he served on the jury and he was the chairman of the jury and he was sharing how it, it just really stirs you with the solemnity of the decision-making process. And he shared with me how, uh, and this really was dear to my heart, he shared with me that the particular case at point was auto theft. And I hope that you've enjoyed the prophetic pulpit of Midlothian Bible Church for the last few weeks. Uh, somebody told me, I spoke on that shot not steal and my truck was stolen and... But this friend of mine was sharing how he served in the jury and he shared with me the, the in incredible responsibility that he felt. They were going to decide to send a man 15 to 20 years. Isn't it incredible you get 15 or 20 years for stealing an auto and if you murdered somebody, you might be out in four or five. That always amazes me, but he was talking about this guy was going to be in. Well, you know how the parole goes. Maybe we'll change that, but he might be out much quicker. But he did share with me the awesome responsibility of knowing that you can make a decision as a group of people and a man will be taken into custody for 15 to 20 years. It's a solemn time. It's a serious time. Now, how is that decision made? How does the jury come to a wise decision? In our system, just like in the ancient Jewish system, the way that that was done, it was done by the power of a truthful witness. Now, if a witness gets up on that stand, and if a witness lies, if a witness, according to this verse, gives a false testimony, in this verse it means that this testimony is, is twisting the facts. It's a crooked testimony. In the book of Exodus, it says, don't give an empty, meaningless testimony. 
In fact, this command is very much related to the, the, the commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. In Hebrew, the word that's used for vain in the Ten Commandments is a word that means emptiness. Don't give an empty word. Don't give a word in that court that doesn't conform to reality. Don't give a word that's not true. And the Ten Commandments brings out these two meanings. Don't give an empty word. Don't come out with a twisted, perverted word that's off the track of truthfulness. Why not? Because if your loved one was Dwight on that stand in a murder trial, they could die because of a false testimony. Because of the sacredness, because of the sacredness of that trust in ancient Israel, it was a capital offense. It was a serious offense to bear false witness in a trial like that. In fact, as we look a little bit further in, in Exodus, turn to Exodus chapter 23, verse 1. It not only talks about a courtroom, but it talks about in the whole political process, possibly even just in everyday life. I think it does uh, flow out to everyday life. Circulating a false report is a very serious offense. Look at chapter 23 of Exodus, verse 1. Do not spread false reports. Another translation, do not circulate false reports. Do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. And Exodus pictures repeats the ninth commandment saying, we need to be very careful about opening our tongue and getting it to begin to wag and doing what the book of James says, that our tongue is like a fire. It's like when you kindle a, a fire with a match and it begins to burn and, and it begins to consume. The book of Exodus is warning us, the book of Deuteronomy is warning us, don't circulate false reports. Be careful not to be a malicious witness that sends forth a false report that slanders somebody. Now because that was such a sacred trust, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 19 focuses on what will happen to someone that's found out in doing this act. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 19 and let's look at the punishment phase of the false witness. Look at chapter 19, verse 15. One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. So the testimony of one witness was not sufficient to convict an individual. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And the intent of this principle in ancient Israel was to verify the authenticity of what was being reported. All of us know the subjectivity of a witness. All of us know that two people can look at something and they can look at it differently. One person can totally misconstrue a situation. So in ancient Israel, they did not let someone be convicted on the testimony of just one witness. There had to be at least two, usually three. The idea of two or three is there has to be multiple witnesses that can verify the story of what's being testified. Now verse 16 talks to us about what we just learned in Exodus was a no, was an absolute not in ancient Israel. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse a man of a crime, so you've got the dramatic scene. It's the scene that I set up for you in our introduction. It's, it's these Martin Chelansky's three false witnesses that get up there. Under, they've got a whole scheme going. They've got a whole conspiracy going. They want to get Dwight's farmland. They want to be able to make a big buck. And so they're framing the man to get him out of the way. It says if a witness like that takes the stand to accuse a man of a crime, 
The two men involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the, before the priests and the judges who are in the office at the time. I want you to see in ancient Israel, they stood before the Lord. It's very interesting that as we move more and more into the secular arena of our own society, the more you move away from the Lord, the more you move away from truthfulness. And it's something that we as believers need to really pray about. In fact, we need to be a model about what it means to do things before the Lord. I find in my own life, it's only as I live in the presence of the Lord that I'm able to be truthful, that I'm able to be truthful with myself, that I'm able to be truthful with other people. You see, as we go through life, if we're not living close to the Lord, our imagination is so strong and we can want something so badly that we can twist the truth and if we can do it long enough and we can, we can want it so badly, we can actually get up in a courtroom and we can believe we're telling the truth when we're telling a lie. In fact, every single one of you can think back over your life and I guarantee it that there's some things that you think happened in your life that really did not happen in your life. But you have told yourself for month after month, year after year, hour after hour, you have told yourself this is the way things are and that's not the way things are. Jonathan had a class with Guerrera and she gave a lecture to their class, about 15 of them. How in the world could a girl use publicity campaigns and say she had graduated from the University of Texas when she didn't do it. And we can all say we're flabbergasted. You know, suddenly the opposition gets this news and, and suddenly it goes out all over the wires and all over the newscasts that this woman really didn't graduate from the University of Texas. How can she have herself graduating with honors? How can then she then say, well, it wasn't with honors, but it was graduation. And then it comes out she didn't graduate at all. How can that ever happen? You know, all of us as just everyday normal people kind of go like this. You know, we hit our heads and say, that's incredible. No, it isn't. Every one of you, if day by day you don't spend some quiet time alone with the Lord, opening the Word of God, allowing God's Word to speak to you and to talk to you, and then as you hear the Word of God penetrating your soul, you spend some quiet moments and say, Lord, search me, O God. Search me, O God, and see if there's any wicked way in me. That anger that's deep in my soul. Lord, is it sitting deep in my stomach like an acid, like a malignancy that's blinding me to reality? Is it causing me to look at everything through glasses that twist the truth? Am I turning away some of my best friends because I just can't really be open? I just really can't be honest? Am I lying to myself? You see, if you don't do that every single day, you begin to walk away from the truth. And I begin to walk away from the truth. And the Lord says, don't bear a false testimony. How could Guerrero ever do that? She told herself over and over and over and over and over again. I graduated. I graduated. But she didn't. By the way, the lecture was on. As she closed the lecture, she said, now students, stay in school. Get your degree. That was the essence of her. It's really important to finish so that's good. It's incredible. I had a friend, Mary and I worked with a guy out in Southern California. 
He's one of the most powerful persuaders that I've ever worked with. In fact, this guy would go out and he would sell enough nave topical Bibles to make about $3,000 a week. Back then when that was really big money. But you know what? That precious guy didn't know when he was telling the truth and when he was telling a lie. In fact, when he uh, left Dallas Theological Seminary, he went to Philadelphia, he started a church, the church began to grow, and he had everybody call him Dr. So-and-so. And this went on for several years, you know. This was Dr. So-and-so. And he talked about his doctorate degree from Dallas Theological Seminary. You know what the truth was? The truth was that he got thrown out of Dallas Theological Seminary for trying to get a professor to change his grades so that he could pass a course. He never even graduated from the master's program, and yet he believed in his mind he had a doctorate. And he convinced hundreds of people that that was true. But it was a lie. A malicious witness. A false testimony. And some of the worst kind of falseness is when we're self-deceived. And when we believe it ourselves. It says if a malicious witness does this, these two men stand before the Lord and the judges who are in office at the time, the judges must make, verse 18, the judges must make a thorough investigation and if the witness is proved to be a liar, giving false testimony against his brother. So number one, the judgment is made before the Lord. It's done by a group of people that are looking to the Lord, the Lord of truth, the author of truth, the origin of truth. And then they're able, they have to, our relationship with God doesn't relieve us from the responsibility of thoroughly investigating things. Do you thoroughly investigate it when you get a bad report? Do you thoroughly investigate it before you share it with somebody else? I find time and time again in my dealings with people in business, in my dealings with people in the church, in my dealings with people in a school, in this town, in this town, false, false reports, false information, false testimony, and it spreads out. How do we change that? We do what the Lord says here, especially if you are a leader, if you're the head of your business, if you're an employer, if you're a judge, if you're someone with responsibility, if you're a teacher in a school, how important it is for us to get burdened about thoroughly investigating things. Now, as I sit here and say, let's thoroughly investigate things, we all say, that's right, we need to investigate it. We need to be really careful not to report something that we're not really sure about. Isn't it easy to make those kind of commitments? It's hard when you've got a really good story, right? Boy, it's hard when you just got some juicy news. Boy, that's hard to tell the truth. But I beg you, in the courtroom, in the school, in our families, in our church, we must thoroughly investigate the matter. Please learn to be the, a person that, that, that opens themselves up to receive the truth. Do you realize that in order to hear what your wife is really saying, to really hear the truth, you have to be quiet and open yourself up to her? And all the wives said, that was a little bit weak, girls. Do you realize, you realize, wives, to really know what your husband is thinking? You have to be quiet. In fact, he's not going to be, most of your husbands aren't going to be nearly as quick with words as you are. And while they're fumbling, 
and trying to find the right word and their mind is just beginning to get in gear. It's so easy to already decide what they've said and what they think and what what's going on. And it's so easy to be all living in deception. And oh, how we need to be careful to thoroughly investigate, to learn to listen. Proverbs says, he who answers before listening is a fool. Proverbs says that when one person gives a testimony, it all seems right until the other person gives their testimony. And all those principles are principles of wisdom. Now look what happens when they thoroughly investigate the matter and they find out that one of the witnesses was lying. The judges must make a thorough investigation. And if the witness proves to be a, call it what it is, he's not a journalist. You give a false report, it's a lie. You know, we've made it a whole industry. You go to the grocery store and you've got lying magazine. And some of you actually believe all those stories they tell you about the people invading from outer space and the babies that are born with two heads and everything else. You know, it's lying. We need to be very careful in the courtroom and journalism and every area of life that we need to be very careful not to be proved the liar. If we find someone giving false testimony against a brother, then do to him as he intended to do to his brother. You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people, now notice this, in a society that says that strict punishment has no deterrent effect, listen to what the Word of God says. It says the rest of the people will hear of this and they will be afraid. The rest of the people will hear this and they will be afraid and they will never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now why is the Lord so strong about that? Because the Dwights of this world and his kids and his wife deserve not to have their daddy wiped out because of a lie. It's serious. In our study together, I want you to see the incredible power for evil that a false word can have. In fact, there's a very powerful illustration right from the page of the Scripture. Turn over to 1 Kings chapter 21. We have a first-class story, a historical event, not a made-up story like I did with Dwight, but a real-life, honest-to-goodness tale that is historical in fact. And look what happened in chapter 21 of 1 Kings. You find it? Here we go. 1 Kings 21, verse 1. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. And in exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll pay you whatever it's worth. Man alive, i got a special deal for you. Ahab is the king of Israel. He's up in his palace of Samaria, and he looks down upon this beautiful area. Man, it would make a perfect vegetable garden. Just the perfect place to put potatoes and string beans as the spring season came. And he goes to Ahab and says, Man alive, I'll give you double your money. Man, I'll give you the, any land that you want. Just give me that vineyard. And Naboth said, Ahab, no. No, that, that's, been in our, that's been our family farm for generation after generation after generation. That's my life. Naboth said, don't you know, Ahab, that in Israel, 
land is a sacred gift that we received from the Lord. In fact, if we even give the land away or if we lose it due to bad debts, it's turned back to us after so many years. It has to be turned back to us. On the year of Jubilee, we get it all back to us. I can't give you my land. Ahab is a real strong, courageous king. He goes back up into his bedroom and he's pouting. His wife comes in. His wife is wicked queen Jezebel. Jezebel comes in and she says, What's the matter, big boy? And he's bawling his eyes out, you know, and the tears are rolling down his cheeks. And Ahab says, I can't have my vineyard. I really want to have my vineyard. Naboth won't give it to me. He's bawling his eyes out. Jezebel says, Man, big boy, that's no problem at all. I can take care of that. So she sends a note to the elders of the city where Naboth lives. They have a big festival. They call it great big all-citywide picnic. A big market celebration, man, like a big bazaar in the ancient Near East. Right in the middle of this celebration, when all the people are gathered around, a false witness hollers out that Naboth has blasphemed the king and the Lord God of heaven. A court is convened in the city gate, which is where it would be their municipal court of the ancient Near East. Naboth is brought on trial like Dwight in our introduction. Three false witnesses get up and they tell these tales of how they've heard um, Naboth cursing the king and cursing God. And this story is confirmed three times. Ka-thump, ka-thump, ka-thump. And the gavel comes down and the, and the crowd is really moved to violence. They grab Naboth, they take him outside the city and they stone him to death. A few weeks later, Ahab goes in, takes possession of the garden and he owns it. And the wicked Martin Chelansky of the ancient Near East, of ancient Israel, has won the day. Now he has the prophet of God came to Ahab and says, Ahab, what have you done? I know what you have done. You have spilled innocent blood. You've spilled innocent blood in the land of Israel. Naboth was an honest, upright son of the covenant. And you lied and you cheated because you coveted his land and you stole his land and your wicked wife committed false testimony with three vicious gang men like the, the mafia of the ancient northern Israelite kingdom and they framed an innocent man and he was killed and you're going to die. But I, see, I want you to see the amazing grace of God. Look what happens at verse 27 of chapter, of chapter uh, 21. It says, then the, it says, when Ahab heard these words from the prophet, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and he fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. You know the incredible thing about the Lord God of heaven? You can do the most heinous act. And the Lord that looks upon the hearts, the Lord that can discern spirits, knows when you're genuinely repentant. Ahab is probably, probably the wickedest king of the northern kingdom. But when the prophet of God confronted him with the truth, this time he humbled himself. His wicked wife did not, but he did. And it says that the word of the Lord came to Elijah, the prophet, the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? 
Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Which is exactly what happened. A hundred years later, Jehu, the great warrior, came up and slew the house of Omri, the house of Ahab, and the blood of the, of the, of the Ahab kings, his sons, was spilled. Wicked Queen Jezebel was thrown out of an upper story window. Her body was dragged and torn to bits and the dogs came and licked her blood up. If you want a vicious story, you can read about it in the book of 1 Kings. They licked her blood up, guess where? In Naboth's vineyard. In fact, the blood of the northern Israelites' kings was spilled and shed and it was licked up right in Naboth's vineyard. You know why? Because the Lord of all the earth will do right. He'll bring about justice. But I want you to notice, Ahab humbled himself. You know what keeps us from telling the truth? Our pride. And I plead with you. In fact, I'm just praying with all my heart that the Spirit of God will penetrate your heart. Because it's so easy for us to be deceived. It's so easy for us to be giving false testimony. This is one of those subtle commandments. This is one of those commandments where we can think that we're doing everything right. We can think that we're really, really going strong. To give you an example of how false testimony, every single year I get a petition trying to get all the religious broadcasters off the air. For the last five years, every single year, there's a petition that sweeps through the, the believing community. It was up in Lincoln, Nebraska. It's down here in Texas. It goes all over the place. You check with the the Federal Communications Agency, and you call them up, and you know what they do? They laugh at you. You say, why are you laughing? They say, because we have seven or eight big bags of U.S. mail filled with letters with that petition in it. We want you to know that that case was decided years ago, and it was totally defeated, and it's not what's happening at all right now. It's a total false report. Now, what happens to the causes of Christ when we bear false testimony? You see, even if it's our enemy, even if it's someone that's against us, if we lie, if we deceive, if we bear false testimony, then we've all become part of the darkness of enemy territory. One of the worst places to have lying is not just in the court. One of the worst places to have lying is in the church. In fact, in the, ancient, in the ancient Near East, in the land of Israel, the lying prophet was probably deserving of the worst punishment that there could ever be. In fact, if you look at Ezekiel chapter 13, there's an entire chapter that speaks about the deceitful lying tongues of the prophet. Look at Ezekiel chapter 13, a false prophet. There we read this. Where the Lord came to me, verse 1, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are now prophesying, say to those who prophesy out of their own imagination, these men are supposed to be giving the word of God. They're supposed to be teaching word upon word, line upon line, what this holy book says. But instead, they're giving their word from God from their own imagination. Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets, O Israel, are like jackals among ruins. You have gone up to the breaks in the wall to repair it for the house of Israel so that it will stand firm in the battle of the day of the Lord. 
Their visions are false and their divinations are a lie. They say the Lord declares when the Lord has not sent them, yet they expect their words to be fulfilled. Have you not seen false visions and uttered lying divinations when you say the Lord declares, though I have not spoken? I want to really affirm what you learned about the danger of false cults. One of the worst false testimonies that can ever take place is in what I'm doing. You see, if I don't teach you the Word of God, if I don't study that Word, if I don't hear God's voice, and I come to you and as, as, a, as a pastor purportedly teaching you the Word of God, if I teach you my own imagination, my own thoughts, my own beliefs, then that's the worst kind of false testimony that can ever be done. Something that I've really appreciated over the years, I've gotten one note from you after another saying, it's hard on us, but please keep teaching the whole truth, the full counsel of God. Some of you will write notes and say, you know, what you told me, I felt that on Sunday you were speaking directly to me. I wasn't. I didn't know it was in your mind. I don't have the foggiest idea what any of you are thinking, hardly. I can't even know what I'm thinking half the time, not alone reading your mind. But the Spirit of God does. And right now as we've been speaking to you and learning about false testimony, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will send a dart into your soul if you're deceived. If you're not open. If you're not really responsive to the truth. False testimony is a cunning thing that, that can destroy a church. In ancient Israel, the people that were supposed to be teaching the Word of God were just teaching things of their own imagination. They were making up visions. They were making up dreams. They were making up their whole story, and it was a lie. And you know what happened to the nation? The nation of Israel went into captivity because of their lie. In the book of Ezekiel and in the book of Hosea, the prophets say that the kingdoms of Israel and Judah went into captivity because they believed the lie of the false prophet. So as you, as the children grow up and you go out into other parts of the country, as you begin to think about where are you going to fellowship, where are you going to raise your kids and church families, be sure that you come to a family that carries this book, opens it up, and studies it. And I would expect that would just be a, something that you would all know, but it's not true. Some of you can go into other situations and other places and you can have sat here year after year and you're supposedly really understanding the Word of God and you don't. You'll go into a, into a church family that doesn't study the Bible at all. You'll like the, the young people's program or you'll like the social program. Don't do it. You need to be in a place every week. In fact, every day you need to be in your own place where you're hearing the word of the true prophet. And boy, there's all kinds of lies out there. The Koresh thing done in Waco is just a small tip of an iceberg of the violence, of the destruction, of the awful devastation of a lying witness in the church of a false prophet. Now, where are we going to find truth? Well, the Lord Jesus tells us that lying comes from the evil one. In fact, in John 8, he says, you lie, you're of your father, the devil. He's lied from the beginning. He is a murderer and he is a liar. Where can we find truth? The only person in all the universe that we can find truth in is in the person of Jesus Christ. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 20. It says, you, however, 
did not come to know Christ in this way. Surely you have heard of him. I pray that if you've been under the teaching of our ministry very long, that you've heard that Jesus died in your place in the cross of Calvary. Don't ever let that become an old hat message. Something I've just heard over and over again, it doesn't mean anything. You have heard of him. And him, that precious him, is the most important him in all the universe. And that's not good English, but that's, you'll understand what I'm saying. Jesus is an incredibly powerful Savior. You've heard of him. He's the one that died for you. He's the one that rose again. You've been taught in him. All of our thrust of our church families teaching the word is centered in this personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You are taught in him, now look it, in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. There's only one truth, and it's found in the ultimate man of truth. His name is Jesus. You were taught in regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, to put off that old way of life, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitudes of your mind. That's part of what we've been doing. We've been changing the attitudes of our mind. We're being reminded of our new identity in Christ. We're being instructed in the truth of God's word. And you have put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. When you invited Christ into your heart, the Lord Jesus created a new truth telling you. He created a new moral you. He created a new non-stealing you. He created a new you that loves God with all your heart. That's what Paul is saying. You see, when we invite Jesus into our heart as our personal Savior, He comes in and works a miracle. He changes us. But then it's very important for us to draw upon this new life, to believe in this new life, to live open to that new life. And that's why he goes on very practically and says this. Therefore, each of you must put off what? He must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of one body. You know why you shouldn't lie to me? Because I'm part of your body. You know why I shouldn't lie to you? Because I'm part of your body. When I was driving back from a singles retreat at 11 o'clock and I'm really kind of tired, my eyes can begin to lie to me, but that's a dumb thing for my eyes to do. You see, if my eyes suddenly say, that, that 18-wheeler's going to stop, and my feet jam on the thing, and I go bang right into the windshield, that's stupid. But I wouldn't go in the windshield because I had my seatbelt buckle. But it's a dumb thing for your eyes to lie to your feet when you're driving. You know why? Because it's all one body. If my eyes fool me, if my ears fool me, and my body reacts, then it's dumb. Because my body gets hurt and my eyes are part of my body. Every single one of you are part of the body of Christ. Don't lie. And you can all piously sit there this morning and say, I don't lie. I never lie. <laughs> yes, we do. You lie every time you hear a false report and you repeat it. And you don't go to the person that's involved and find out the truth. We will stay together and we will find great healing for our souls if we'll remember to investigate 
the matter. If we remember to give the benefit of the doubt, to remember there needs to be two or three witnesses. I never believe a report unless there's some substantiating two or three witnesses. Your whole life can become dominated by believing false reports. Or you can open your heart humbly to the Savior. You can investigate the truth. You can search out the truth. And the truth will set you free.